I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up. We're going to talk about what's going on with the war in Ukraine as Russia continues to press upon that great country. We're also going to talk about the start of Lent and what uh, we're giving up or what we're adding during this time of reflection and remembrance. And then later on the pod, our colleague, Reverend Elisa Adalpe, sits down with Ann Carter from First Baptist Church, Richmond, Virginia, to talk about the day that the statue of Robert E. Lee was taken down in their city. It is quite the story. So stay tuned, it's gonna be a good episode. Rainforest, volcanoes, coastlines with crystal blue water, fresh fruit and seafood. Join Good Faith Media for an immersive experience on Hawaii's Big Island. Discover brilliant night skies with our friend, astrophysicist Paul Wallace. Explore and have fun with your small group of adventurers. Join us May 21st through the 28th. Learn more at faithexperiences.org. Autumn, guess where I am? Well, the audio quality is a little weird. Are you inside of a tin can? <laughs> I am inside of a tin can in the city that is so nice. They named it twice. The oh, Big Apple, New York so City. jealous. New York. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Are you well, there just to like see the Rockettes and stuff or uh, what's happening? No, we, uh, Good Faith Media was honored to be invited to attend a interfaith prayer service this week at the United Nations and leaders from faith traditions from all across the world are gathering virtually and in person here at the United Nations to pray together, to pray for peace, to pray for a resolution in the situation in Ukraine. So uh, we're here to cover the event. Uh, We're going to attend the service uh, which is going to be held at noon Eastern on Thursday of this week. And we're going to conduct some interviews with the leaders and participants and campaigners of the prayer service. So uh, it's just an honor to be here uh, and standing beside these incredible men and women from around the world joining together to pray for peace. Uh, so that's why I'm in New York City. Uh, so I, I may see. have to have a slice or two, though, while I'm here. I absolutely. I was gonna send you uh, the last time Josh and I were there, and then Josh was there more recently than me, and he went and checked in. There's um, this deli on the Upper West Side that we are sort of obsessed with. So I'm gonna send you to get some pastrami queen at some point. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, I'm on the east side, uh, right off the East River. In fact, I'm looking out my window right now, staring at the United Nations. So I'm just right. Oh, here. that's so cool. Yeah, I'm glad yeah. that you're there covering it. I think it's important and still, you know, very hopeful this is going to be a short, a short lived situation. Yeah. Since last week, a lot has a lot has happened uh, in Ukraine. Um, I believe wholeheartedly that President Vladimir Putin thought that his troops were going Did you air to... quote President? Should we air quote it? I'm going to air quote it for our listeners. Okay. We will consider it officially air quoted. Okay. That uh, Putin thought that uh, his forces were just going to roll through Ukraine, capture Kiev, 
And this was going to be done in, you know, within 48 hours. Obviously, that has not happened. It's been an incredible uprising by not only those brave men and women of the Ukrainian armed forces, but also citizens are standing in the way, standing in front of tanks, uh, you know, walking up to Russian soldiers, telling them to get out of their country. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is really a remarkable uh, response by Ukrainians uh, to this invasion. It's just, it's, 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 it's heartbreaking. It's, it's frustrating, um, makes us angry because of what Putin is doing. Um, but the resolve of the Ukrainian people is just remarkable. It is. And I was talking with um, my daughter last night. She's 15. And this is really sort of the first, you know, war that she remembers watching unfold. And, you know, she's observing it through the filters of TikTok and Snapchat. And uh, it's, you know, it's rolling in real time in front of her eyes. And so it's really sparked a lot of conversation. And one thing that we were talking about is that, um, is that Putin doesn't represent all of Russia, and that there are a lot of Russian dissenters, and that we need to remember that. Yeah, protesters in Moscow and St. Petersburg uh, have uh, been very vocal in their denouncing of this invasion. I think it's Mm -hmm. even hard for uh, mainstream Russians because they see Ukraine as, you know, siblings. Uh, A lot of Ukrainians speak Russian, certainly a lot of Russian culture and influences there. Uh, But it's also a Ukrainian Culture, and so you know, you can hear the Ukrainians speak on television. They say they just don't understand why this is happening because they consider Russia a brother Mm -hmm. in the region, Mm -hmm. and it's just it's really you know, for all of the rhetoric that Putin has um, has used over the last several years since he invaded Crimea, they didn't think he would go this far, but here he is, Mm -hmm. and they're sitting on the doorstep of. Of Kiev, and uh, I, I think, unfortunately, it's only going to continue to get worse. Uh, I hope that the resolve of the Ukrainian people. I hope that European countries. It seems as though, while they're not putting boots on the ground, they're supporting the Ukrainian uh, armed forces uh, with weapons and ammunition uh, to fight back. So. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens, but uh, we're pe- praying for peace here in New York City at the United Nations. We're hoping the best uh, for the best outcome, uh, but it's it's just heartbreaking to see all the mm-hmm. deaths, uh, civilian deaths, um, is is rolling in. I mean, I've heard up to, to two thousand uh, at this point. Civilians, uh, Ukrainian civilians, have been killed. Schools, uh, apartments have been bombed by the Russians. It's just, I don't know what Putin's thinking at this point. Um, yeah. So, so we're just we're 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 holding a fort. We are holding our our hearts and our minds and souls up uh, to our Creator, and hopefully, peace will prevail. What do you think about uh, President Zelensky from Ukraine? He has been remarkable through all this. I'm going to have to fan myself a little bit when you start talking about Zelensky, Mitch. I'll just tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, he, and he's just a leader. And you want to talk about what an actual patriot is. Um, right. You're looking at it right there. Someone who's not just, you know, a, a talking head, but like is actually out, you know, doing the right thing for his country and literally in the trenches with his people. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's remarkable. Uh, his response to the United States offer to give him an escort out of the country, I thought, uh, mm-hmm. spoke volumes to who he was. He says, mm-hmm. I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. Yeah. Um, he is on the streets. He's meeting with uh, his uh, his cabinet. He's meeting with soldiers who are on the front lines. I mean, it's just really, really remarkable. And I mm-hmm. uh, saw him speaking at the UN here uh, just yesterday uh, to uh, to the delegates. And after his speech, in fact, uh, at the conclusion of his speech, if you if you listen to it, the translator even started to break up. Uh, Mm -hmm. because of their admiration for this man and Mm -hmm. all the delegates when he was finished uh, stood up and uh, to a thunderous applause Mm -hmm. uh and what was you know stark contrast immediately following Zelensky's speech to the un the uh, russian delegate began to speak and as he did every other delegate in the hall stood up and walked out on him uh, so I mean, it this is this really has been a global response, yeah, uh, to an aggressor. So yeah, uh, again, we we hope we hope peace prevails. I hope that there's a way out for Putin that he can see a way out. He doesn't feel like he has painted himself into a corner, yeah, uh, because a a desperate Putin is very dangerous, and so we, none of us want that. No. Well, Autumn, um, I don't see a smudge on your forehead right now, but I'm sure. I, you'll I haven't be going been to, to church Ash yet. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gone yet, no. Uh, uh, well, Ash Wednesday was this week, and so that marks the beginning of Lent. Um, let's talk about Lent for just a second. You and I grew up a Southern Baptist. Um, let's just say Southern Baptist. Um, they did not... Uh, observe Ash Wednesday or Lent in the churches that I grew up with. And why is that, Autumn? Well, we're not one of them Catholics. (laughs) That's exactly what we heard in our churches. It was too Catholic. Uh, But as an adult, you know, I have embraced Ash Wednesday and Lent. It's, It's just so rich with meaning and purpose. And I can remember the first time I introduced, uh, uh, Ash Wednesday to the good folks at North Haven Church, where I pastored in Norman, Oklahoma for 11 years. Uh, some of those good Baptists thought I was a little wonky, <laughs> a little strange for doing it, but it has become a, a very meaningful service uh, for that church. And, yeah. and I see a, a rising interest in uh, these liturgical uh, days and liturgical events on the Christian calendar even within Baptist. So what are your thoughts on Lent these days? Well, Mitch, um, in solidarity with Ukraine and my main squeeze Zelensky, I'm going to be giving up <laughs> Russian vodka for Lent this year. Well, well that is a sacrifice for you. <laughs> I've seen your liquor cabinet. <laughs> it's full because we just really never drink. But no, in, in all seriousness, you know, there have been Lenten times in my life where I've given up something um, as you know, silly as an alarm, uh, a snooze button on my alarm clock and yeah. just getting up and greeting the day. I've given up um, sweets. I've given up different things along the way. Um, I was actually texting with our pastor um, yesterday about Lent. He'd posted something about, you know, if Lent is something that is not 
available to you to give up this year. Like, that's okay. And we were talking about how, you know, I've been pregnant for about half my life, it seems like. And so anytime I was pregnant over Lent, I felt like sort of I'd already given enough of myself and sort of <laughs> didn't didn't give up anything at that point. But I, I really like the idea of adding to. Um, I think there's just some more um, centering time in the evenings. I have a, like a book of prayers that I'm going to be praying. Our, our son is going through some sort of tricky stuff at night, and I am just sort of committed to spending that time in prayer for him and, and his health. I love that. I mean, you know, it's one thing that we talked about in church when I was pastoring uh, is that, you know, the whole idea during Lent is when you deny yourself something and sometimes that's that's fasting during the day um it's it's a, this physical t- denial it's this physical sacrifice that allows you to clean your body which in turn also makes you mindful uh it does something to the spirit mm-hmm. uh, as well but also i love this idea of if you cannot give something up uh, for whatever reason to attempt to add something to your day that is meaningful and purposeful. Um, you know, a lot of, I love exactly what you said, that you're praying for your son. I've heard other people who, you know, are volunteering or, you know, you know paying uh, for coffee for the person, you know, behind them in line. Uh, I mean, there's just, there's a lot of good things that we can do. And by golly, Autumn, if there's one thing this world needs right now, it's kindness and mm-hmm. grace and generosity. So. So I'm looking forward to Lent. Uh, I've been thinking yeah. about it uh, and uh, trying to figure out what I'm going to do. It's very personal for me, so I don't share a whole lot of public. Uh, but I'm certainly going to find something that uh, that I can I can add to my uh, my faith uh, during mm-hmm. these these 40 days, excluding Sunday uh, towards Easter. So, hey, we didn't talk about this in the intro, uh, but I do want to talk about it because uh, it's out of your home state. Um, There was a very, very egregious bill signed last week in the state of Texas Mm -hmm. uh, that permits uh, parents and I guess just citizens of Texas uh, to be on the lookout and to turn in parents of transgender children um, and basically tagging any kind of counseling by an adult of a transgender child that is favorable. Uh, turning Ex- that acceptance into, at all, right? Of yeah, it's, it's child abuse, and I—I I mean, this this should be alarming. Uh, yeah. I don't care. I, I don't care. You know, if you have a theological conviction of, you know, about this particular issue, this law is egregious, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and it is frightening. So yeah. what have you heard? I mean, I know you still got a lot of contacts down in Texas. Yeah, I do. I There's been an uprising, really, of folks who are especially, uh, you know, our social workers, our teachers, our first, our, our people who have um, a duty to report. Um, and And how do you hold that tension of knowing that the importance of parents responding favorably to a child who is, you know, dealing with what gender they are, um, knowing that acceptance is key to that child's survival. And then you have lawmakers saying, if you accept your child and and try to um, do anything, you know, to be productive and accepting of them, that it's abuse. 
it's it's really tricky. I did see that the ACLU out of Texas is uh, is filing a, an amicus brief about the situation, and so I'm hopeful that that will get some traction. But it happened very quickly too, which is yeah. what's really scary. It did, and we're uh, just so let the audience know we are in the process of booking somebody from down. Uh, in Texas uh, to talk about this issue. Uh, so we're hoping to, to visit with them hopefully by next week mm-hmm. on what's going on and kind of the reaction because there are already cases where parents are turning other parents in and turning teachers in. Uh, and so it's, it's just, uh, I, I just, I, I don't understand it. I don't get it. Uh, the religious right in this country uh, is hell bent on destroying the country. Uh, they thrive on division. They thrive on the oppression and marginalization of other people, especially minorities. And I'm just, I'm fed up with it. And until the, the, the you know, more progressive people like us, we continue to speak out on it. But until moderates, until, uh, to be even more frank, until moderate white folks get outraged about this, nothing's going to happen. Mm-mm. And Mm-mm. so I hope that the, I hope that this does it and they can see the handwriting on the wall that this is the kind of country that the religious right is trying to uh, create. And I will not have it. I will not stand by and stand idle uh, to see laws like this pass. No, and talk so about harmful. picking on the least of these. Goodness mm-hmm. gracious, you take a vulnerable population of children? Like really? Mm-hmm. That's that's who you want to pick on right now. Don't think that's what that would be on Jesus' agenda, Mitch. No, no I agree. Okay. Well, Adam, you and I had the week off from interviewing uh, anybody this week. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of had that to do with my travel schedule. Uh, but we've got an incredible interview by our colleague, Reverend Elisa Adalpe. Uh, she sat down with Ann Carter from First Baptist Church, Richmond, Virginia. It is an incredible story. We heard this story a few weeks ago when uh, Elisa and I uh, attended the uh, Oasis Conference of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship in Montreat, North Carolina. One of their ministers was there. And we started talking to them about what happened during the summer of 2020 and afterward in the city of Richmond, especially with so much attention focused on the Robert E. Lee statue there in Statue Row uh, there in Richmond. And we heard this story about what First Baptist Church, Richmond, Virginia, did at the prompting of this beautiful, wonderful woman, uh, the moment the statue goes down in Richmond. And so it's a great interview. At least it does a great job talking with her and visiting with her. And the story is just remarkable. So I think you're going to enjoy it. Stay tuned and we'll be right back. Marvel at Pacific Coast Wells. Wonder in rainforests. Explore wild coastlands and towering cliffs. Join Good Faith Media for a unique and immersive experience in the Pacific Northwest and Olympic National Park. Enjoy engaging conversation with your small group of adventurers led by our team, which includes a journalist, historian, and theologian. Join us July the 23rd through 30th. Learn more at faithexperiences.org. 
Hello, everybody. This is Elisa Aldape with Good Faith Media, and I am here with Anne Whitfield Carter, um, sitting in the church library of Richmond First Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. Um, and uh, yeah, we're here to talk about um, some really cool things happening, uh, not just this weekend, but also um, in the bigger history of Richmond First Baptist Church. So before we get started, Anne, would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your history here at the church? Sure. Um, I came to First Baptist Church in 1992. I um, had been a journeyman with the Southern Baptist Foreign Mission Board in Japan for two years and came home and um, didn't know what to do or anything. My parents had actually left the church they had been in and had joined First Baptist in my absence. And so I came here because I had nothing else to do, and they're like, come to church with us. And um, so literally, like, the second time I ever came here, I actually met who the man who became my husband. <laughs> and, like, it's just this crazy story. But um, I immediately joined the church and um, have been actively involved there um, since uh, September of 92. And... Um, sang in the choir, um, volunteered in lots of different ways, but started working in the student ministry in about um, 1998. I began teaching sixth grade Sunday school and just did that for a couple of years. And there was an opportunity to partner with one of the, the ministers on our staff to do create a middle school ministry and so I worked with her to do that and and we created just a really kind of fun unique experience for simply just middle schoolers and mm. she ended up um, leaving and take going elsewhere and they were trying to look for someone to hire and they could not find anybody that was willing to take a 20 hour a week temporary job working with middle schoolers and they had this one young man who had grown up in our church who was wanted to go to seminary, but he just got married. He's like, I want to work and save money in this, like, I literally just got married and I'm going to work and save money before I can go to seminary. And <clears throat> then I, then just a couple years and I'll take the position. And so that was in, um, fall of 2002, August of 2002. And so I was like, um, our minister of students, Lynn Turner, said, hey, would you be interested in just, like, helping out and, like, just temporarily part-time? And I'm like, yeah, sure, I guess. And literally, I'm still here. And it's been this unbelievable journey of discovery and faith and, and realizing that God calls us to where we are mm. and how living into that call kind of evolves into something you never imagined. And so I became the um, minister to students. I was called here in the... I lose track dates, so I think it was um, fall of twenty fall of twenty eighteen. Okay, fall of, fall of twenty eighteen. They called me to be the minister of students here, and um, that was the last thing I ever expected I would be doing. And it's been just such a joy to be a part of this congregation and to be in a place where um, my gifts. And what I bring to the table are affirmed and lifted up and how people have seen things in me I didn't see in myself and have called me up and called mm -hmm. me out to something more than I ever imagined. Wow. So it's pretty yeah. remarkable. Yeah, that's great. Um, so you have quite a history with this church. Um, and this church has has quite a history. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this weekend I was here um, leading your uh, D-Now weekend for your youth or for your students. 
Um, and so one of the things that they did was a scavenger hunt that was very specific to this church's history. Right. Um, which for, I think some churches is like, oh, that's a short scavenger hunt. And this one took two hours. Yes, and I learned so much about this place. Um, but for, for our listeners yeah. who weren't able to, who weren't, didn't have the gift of participating in scavenger right. hunt, can you tell us a little bit about the history um, sure. of the church? If you could just a little bit, but you know, yeah, whatever you okay. think the highlights are. Okay. <laughs> so many highlights. So I, First Baptist was formed in 1780. Mm-hmm. And so um, we're just a couple of years younger than our nation. Um, and so we have quite a history. We've lived, it's just so interesting. We have lived through so much. Yeah. And um, wars and, <laughs> you know, unrest and pandemics and like all the things and uh, and over and over again, right? Um, and so this, new under the sun. I know there's nothing new under <laughs> the sun. And I think it's remarkable. I always say, you know, like, what's the secret to... First Baptist longevity. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know what the secret is, except I just think it's a really healthy system that has been able to adapt and shift and change Mm -hmm. throughout 247 year, whatever, I don't know, however many years of history. Like, it's pretty remarkable. So, um, so it's founded in 1780. And um, one of the little nuggets that we discovered during the scavenger hunt is... um, some of the first missionaries from, and I never can remember if it's from the United States or if it was from our church, from like Virginia, but there we had a school for slaves. There was a man in our congregation who was very passionate and has created this school for slaves and to edgy, want to teach them how to read and all of that. And there were two young men who came through that school, um, Lot Carey, and I never can remember the second guy's name and my apologies to the second gentleman, but I never (laughs) remember his name. And, they ended up buying their freedom and were equipped by our church to go be missionaries in Liberia, which was their ancestral homeland was Liberia. So they were missionaries in Liberia, mm-hmm. founded a Baptist church there that still exists. And is kind of um, central to a lot of different things in Liberian history. And fast forward to mm, maybe the late 90s, um, a man named Francis Tabla, Baptist student, came from Liberia to Richmond to go to the Baptist Theological Seminary at Richmond and was a member of our church. He worked on staff here, did lots of different things, got his degree, and ended up going to Minneapolis, Minnesota to be a pastor. I think it's St. Paul, Minnesota, to be a pastor um, to this very large Liberian community there. And our church ended up um, funding the building of, or not funding completely, but supporting and helping fund the growth and the building of this church. And we have a little model that they made of their church and sent to us with a card from Francis on top. And it just, this this game yesterday clued me into the full circle of that. Mm. The missionaries who were, or slaves who were brought here, their descendants were educated here, sent back to Liberia as missionaries, started a Baptist church that then... 200 years later, send someone else back to come to be trained to be a minister who then is now ministering to Liberia's in Minnesota. Like, it's really wow. beautiful. I never connected that. And it just was really remarkable. But we um, survived the Civil War. And one of the interesting things is that, and I've always really 
um, appreciated the story. We have a bell in our courtyard that rings to call us to worship every Sunday. It's rung at funerals as we are leaving the service and the body is being placed in the hearse to go to the graveyard. Or um, it's played at weddings. It rang, chiming the hour when David and I got married. Um, during the pandemic, we would ring it at 7 o'clock at night when we were honoring um, the work of our of healthcare workers. And... Um, and so this bell has been ringing for, I'm not sure, I don't remember if it says on the plaque, like when the bell was made, but during the Civil War, that's how old the bell is, we had it before the Civil War. During the Civil War, um, our church sold it to the Confederacy to be used to be melted into cannonballs. And there was a woman in our church who was like, I do not want the bell that was used to call us to worship to be used as a means of war, to kill people for destruction. And she convinced her husband to buy the bell back. Mm. And he was wealthy. I don't know what he did, but he had gold. (laughs) Gave gold to the Confederacy, bought the bell back. And that bell, it's a big bell, sat in their living room (laughs) until the Civil War ended. I'm sure that was just like kind of a pain. Big bell sitting in the middle of your house. Um, and so then once the war was over, they hung it back in the bell tower. And um, we actually were at a different location at that time, downtown at 12th and Broad. Um, and it rang there until they moved here, um, I think in 1920. They moved to this location at the okay. corner of Monument Avenue and the Boulevard. Wow. So um, just kind of a remarkable history. And that bell rings at least once a week, if not more here. Yeah. So, Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. So, you know, quite a history. I mean, mm-hmm. but even before they were here on, um, on Monument Avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, the, so the, the unique thing about one of the unique things mm-hmm. about, um, Richmond First Baptist is that y'all are located, um, on Monument Avenue, mm-hmm. um, which I learned a few years ago when I thought I was running a 10 K for like, Amer- like, like, federal government monuments um turns mm-hmm. out they were confederate confederates confederate monuments mm-hmm. um so i was like oh that's what they mean um <laughs> so that's what i that's what i learned while i was running this thing this 10k was just running up and down these statues of confederate confederate generals mm-hmm. um confederals um i like to call them <laughs> like to call them for short <laughs> no one has time um and yeah so y'all you know um, among the 242 years, mm-hmm. that, at that point, 240 years mm-hmm. of history that mm-hmm. y'all had, that this church has borne witness to, mm-hmm. 2020. Mm. Um, I mean, talk about a year to ring those bells. Mm. Uh, like you said, you rang, you rang those bells for funerals and mm-hmm. at 7 o'clock to honor frontline workers mm-hmm. who were risking their lives daily. Um Something else happened in 2020, <laughs> um, and it has to do with your church bells and mm-hmm. your bell. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, last week, Michael Lacey, who's another minister here at the church, um, you know, we were talking about youth ministry and the pandemic um, at Oasis, which is the CBF Youth Ministry Retreat. And last week, he gave us a snippet of the story. Um, and it was enough for Mitch to, you know, he's like, we need this story now. And I was like, I got you. I'll be there next week. Um, and so can you tell us a little bit about yeah. 2020 and 
that uh, the day the story that we that you're yeah. about to say and yeah just all of it right so interestingly <clears throat> we do sit on the corner of monument avenue and what has been renamed arthur ash boulevard and it um there are monuments to confederate generals and to the confederacy up and down monument avenue. it's a beautiful street and it is something that um it's interesting when the church was this location was chosen there were every denomination was on our street. We had Lutherans, Episcopalians, um, Presbyterians, and they're like, we need a Baptist church on Monument Avenue. We need all, we need, the Baptists need to represent. And so um, a tobacco farmer donated his land, and so... Um, that is the most Virginia thing I've ever heard right, in my life. Right, yeah, used to be a tobacco field. <laughs> and, um, and I have not been able to find any records of the Stonewall Jackson Monument sits at the intersection of Monument and the Boulevard. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, mm -hmm. I can't find anything in our records of what we were doing when the statue was erected. I, it might have even been erected while it was still a tobacco field. Like, I've seen pictures of, like, tobacco and a statue. So, I, you know, I'm not really sure about all of that. But this, literally, when you walk out of the front doors of our sanctuary, you are mm -hmm. overlooking the statue of Stonewall Jackson. So there had been talk over the years about these statues coming down, and we never knew when it was going to happen or how it was going to happen. And one day, I'm actually driving to church. I've been meeting with a student, and I was um, I get a text. Oh, my gosh, the statue's coming down. Stonewall Jackson's coming down. And I was on my way here. And so I remember just driving down the boulevard, and you can see him sitting up high above the boulevard as you come yeah. all the way down from 95 to the church. And there it was, crowds gathered. And we, um, I mean, it was packed. It was packed, and it took hours for them to take this statue down. And so we're outside, all in our masks, and it's July the 2nd or July the 3rd. It's hot. And we're out there, we're handing out water. Our staff is out there. They've just gone and like emptied out the refrigerator. They're <laughs> handing out water to people. And um, just a real lovely sense of community and camaraderie. We're just sitting there just like watching people, <clears throat> what seemed like with a nail file, trying to like, you know, get the separate the statue from the pedestal. And, um, and so I'm just kind of walking around. I'm seeing people that I hadn't seen before in a long time because it was in July of 2020. We hadn't been mm -hmm. together since the beginning of March. And so church members had come down to see what was happening. There were neighbors here. And I ran into a woman who was just a precious friend, um, a black woman. And um, I hadn't seen her since the church had shut down. And I was so thrilled to see her. We were standing, watching this happen and just catching up with each other. And I looked at her and I said, I said, how does this feel? What does this feel like for you? And she said, I, she said, I don't really have words, but I never thought this day would happen. She said, I never thought there would be a point when, when these statues would come down. And I said, so what is it like to be, to live in the shadow of these statues? And she said, and I can't quote her exactly, but the gist of what she said is she said, I always felt like I didn't belong here. Mm. That it's always like when I drive under these statues, it's like, remember your place. Oh, man. You were supposed to be slaves. You were still supposed to be slaves. You are, you know, just because this is what we're honoring. And, um, and so I was just like, <clears throat> I, 
you know, I'm still learning about this. I'm still understanding it. I've always had such pride for Monument Avenue because it's beautiful. This is Richmond history. I've always felt such pride for this. But in that summer of 2020, as I was learning and exploring and experiencing, reading black and brown voices and understanding that perspective and not just my own white historical perspective where I had been taught the history of people who are white right and through that lens and so I was starting to learn all of this which is why when I was talking to her I was asking I was asking those questions and and so as we chatted one of the things that she said was she looked at me and she said wouldn't it be amazing if the bell rang when the statue came down I got goosebumps and tears filled my eyes. And I was like, oh my gosh, that would be the most amazing thing. I said, wait here, don't move, I'll be back. <laughs> so I'm running and I'm trying to find our church staff who's outside saying, you know, what do you think if we rang the bell? What do you, and they're like, I think that, that, you know, when the statue comes out, I think that would be amazing. That could be, that'd be a really good idea. And the whole time I'm thinking the history of this bell <clears throat> right? Yeah. It's been calling us to worship for probably not the entire 242 years of our history, but a big chunk of it mm -hmm. that was rescued from being melted down to, during the Civil War where, where the Confederacy was fighting to be able to keep slaves. You know, that, that the statue coming down and that bell ringing could be I don't know. I just, I got chills. And so everybody seemed to be positively responsive to this. I talked to our <clears> building <throat> support because it's quite an ordeal to ring the bell. It's really heavy. You got to climb on a thing, you get a hook and you're like hanging from it and to ring it. <laughs> so I had to make sure we had everything in place. And, um, and our, um, building administrator said, you need clearance from the pastor. I was like, I need clearance from the pastor. So we, at that period of time, we were recording worship on Wednesdays <clears throat> in our sanctuary, and the worship had started recording at 3 o'clock when everybody's outside. It's loud. It's chaotic. They kept having to stop because it was really noisy and then start up again. And I'm waiting outside the door, like looking <laughs> through the crack, waiting for Jim to come out. And finally he comes out just to grab something off of his desk. They were doing like the closing him and he had something he wanted to say at the end of the service and it was on his desk he's running to get it and i'm like jim jim what if we rang the bell when the statue comes down and he stopped looked up to the left and he says yes <laughs> okay now run outside and um <clears throat> so you know this is taking really time the storm clouds are gathering like actual storm clouds are gathering we hear the rumble of thunder we're looking on our phone radar and it's like massive storms like if it's orange and yellow and like oh lightning strikes everywhere and I'm <clears throat> and we stayed out there and as the statue was coming down lightning is flashing I mean it thunders immediately booming and the bell starts to ring and it just rings and it rings and it rings and it's pouring rain and the lightning is flashing, and we're cheering, and we're weeping, and the bell is ringing, and it just went on and on as the statue slowly, it looked like Stonewall Jackson was riding down Monument Avenue. And once he was down, the bell stopped, and everyone 
kind of slogged their way to the car, but I, I will never forget those moments and the bell ringing, you know, bells ring for weddings and celebration. And I was thinking about my black friends who were celebrating this one small step toward feeling as though they belong here or one step in the removal of the thing that reminds them every day that they don't. <clears throat> and then I think about bells ringing for funerals and the grief and the loss. And I thought about my fr white friends who are struggling to understand. And for them, this is loss, right? And, and that, that for them, that's the bell of grief. But it was also the bell of grief for me because I am grieving the fact that I never understood what it meant. I never understood. And I never understood how it hurt my black friends. And I was grieving for the ways I had unintentionally hurt other people. And that day changed my life in a lot of ways. You know, you look back, you were talking today with the kids about the stones. Mm -hmm. I always call them Ebenezer stones because, yeah. you know, <clears throat> and where you mark a place where you encountered God and were changed. That was that. One of those for me that day. Because I learned something about myself that I needed to change and to adapt and to learn and to grow from. I learned something about people of color, my friends, my black friends. And, and literally until that day, I didn't understand. I didn't, I tried, but I couldn't. And until that conversation with one person who said, every time I drive by, <clears throat> this is what it feels like. And I don't know. I don't have any more words about it. I don't know. I don't know what else to say. It's just like, ah, it just, and the other thing that was interesting is how misunderstood it all was. We had a lot of people angry with us. Mm. Well, that was my next question. Yeah. Was what was what was the response yeah. outside from outside the church? From outside the <clears throat> church, people were like, "The church rang the bell." <laughs> that was amazing. That was beautiful, and and. And I have a, a lot of friends who know this is where I work and where I go to church. They are not church people. <clears throat> and they were like, your church was there. Your church showed up. Your church rang the bell to honor and to celebrate this. And there was ended up being an article in the Washington Post about it. Like there's, uh, I heard it on the news. I heard it on NPR. Wow. You know, and the bell clanging in the background in the middle of the rumble of thunder and the cheers. 
You know, and people were like, that, they're like, yeah, that's what the church is supposed to be. Mm. Like, they're in the middle of what's happening in their neighborhood. That's what the church is supposed to be doing. And, and some people from outside the church were very, like outside our church, mm-hmm. were very ugly about it and dismissive about it and, you know, that we were dishonoring our heritage and our history. And we have people from within our church. Um, we had to take down our Facebook post because all we did, we posted a picture or a video, I don't remember, that just said, history happened today. That was the post. And it was, the responses were so, <clears throat> most, the, so many responses were hate-filled. We had to take it down. We had to shut it off. Hmm. And um, so I think about my black friends who were out there standing, watching this happen, witnessing this, and feeling a glimmer of hope that maybe just maybe we are starting to understand, right? And then for that hatred to come through on our social media page and how hurtful that must be. It's messy. Yeah. It's tricky. And for me, the line comes with when you mistreat other people with your words or with your actions. That's when I'm like, I draw the line. Mm -hmm. We can not agree and have civil conversation about it and agree to listen and to learn, like all of that. You know, I, I hold space for that because people held space for that for me while I listened and learned. But when you start name calling, when you start judging and cursing and condemning and threatening, mm-hmm. that's when you you ha- in no way reflect the body of Christ. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So you're right. This is, this it's, it's a mess. It's, it's so messy. <laughs> you know, we, I think 2020 was the year, you know, we, we all know language matters, right? Our words, mm. the words that we use, the words that we intentionally have used in everyday language, you know, those matter and they hold power. And sometimes mm-hmm. we don't know the origin and the history behind them, right? Right. Um, and I feel like 2020 was the year, and not maybe necessarily that we all got it, but it was the year of reckoning. It's like you want to know that everything you understand about our language, about our culture, is rooted in white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And so it was messy, and it was, in a way, it was also healing because it was mm-hmm. just like, let's just burn this Silent, all down and, yeah. and start start from scratch. Mm-hmm. We need a new language. We need, where do we, you know, we, now we know better. Right, right. We, do, we have to do better. Right. And so I think everybody kind of, every community, every person had to start somewhere. Right. And, you know, maybe it was someone realizing that master bedroom was, was also rooted in white supremacy. <laughs> like, right. 
What? Never we, thought about that. Never thought about never. it. Never. Yeah. Because I never had to think about yeah. it. And then suddenly, like, I mean, it was, again, a whole new language mm-hmm. has, has to be constructed, right? Right. And so, <clears throat> for First Baptist, you know, to, to have this history, this two over 200-year history, and in 2020, you know, not to say that the church has ever ignored it, because I don't think this church has ever ignored the history happening on their street or within their context. Mm-hmm. But what do you do with this? What mm-hmm. does a church do with this in the, mm-hmm. in the days after mm-hmm. the idols come down? I don't know. What did First Baptist do? So, and I think what made this so hard is that we weren't together during this time, right? Like physically, we Mm -hmm. were all sitting in our houses, zooming into church, watching church on Facebook. We weren't brushing shoulders in the hall. We weren't singing and sharing hymn books with each other in worship. We weren't eating dinner around tables in the dining room. Mm -hmm. And so it was really hard because we weren't together to talk about it, to navigate it, to process it, to learn from it in community. It was everybody at home. Yeah. Right? So, like, I mean, we just keep showing up and we're finally back in community. Yeah. Right? And, um, and we keep trying to be the presence of Christ on our corner and meet the needs of our neighbors and, and hold space for, um, all of those conversations that need to happen and to, I don't know, to foster curiosity and, and hard conversations. And I don't, I, you know, I don't know. And I don't, because it's just been so weird and so hard just all the way around to be church together, much less, figure out, especially when not everybody can agree. Like for so many people, you know, Black Lives Matter is a, is a battle cry and it's a, um, a call to violence. Mm. And for some people, Black Lives Matter is us acknowledging that black lives are precious and we haven't treated them as such for many, many generations, and it's time to correct that. So how do you move forward as a congregation when not everybody can come together and agree on that? And, you know, we are getting ready to hold every, this is our fifth year, which predates all of the 2020 stuff, but we do a um, Black History Month, a book read. We invite the city to a book read. Mm-hmm. And we read, um, <clears throat> this year we're reading Jamar Tisby's Color of Compromise, which is such a powerful book because it takes history and he, he summarizes all these different eras of, history, of American history through a black lens, which is so helpful for me because I didn't learn history through a black lens. Not, none of us did. I, 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 can, I can bet that none of us none did. None of us did. None of us did. And which was eye-opening in and of itself. But what was even more profound for me as someone who loves the church and is committed to the church and who truly believes the church should be the body of Christ in our world, 
right? It should be living and acting as Christ's presence in our world that every chapter in every era of history, Jamar evaluates the work of the church and what the church was doing in that era of history. And sometimes the church was doing the right thing, but more often than not, collectively, the church was doing the wrong thing, holding up institutions of slavery, um, holding up economic, um, I don't know, just the economy and flourishing of, of white Americans as the most important mm. and denying um, and, and justifying slavery using scripture. And, and But every single era of history, go all the way through the civil rights movement and <clears throat> all of that, you see how the church could have changed this story at every single point in history. And we didn't, the church didn't. Some churches did and made really wonderful strides and, and doing things that were truly being the presence of Christ in the world and trying to elevate everyone and trying to create equity and justice and um, break down these systems that, that do seek to oppress. But as a whole, it wasn't enough because not enough churches did that. Mm. So that's the book we're reading this month. <clears throat> and in March, mm. March the 7th, we gather in Flaming Hall. We have a conversation and Jamar will be here for that conversation. And I'm really, really excited about that. Mm. And so um, our students really care about it. Yeah. And they are curious, and they are learning. It's interesting. There, some most of them are farther along than I am. I've got a lot of old stuff to uproot, right? Fifty-three, <laughs> and I've got a lot of stuff to uproot. But they teach me. They teach me how to love and how to act, like how to use how that we all have agency and they're out there doing that and they are trying to bring the church along. They want their church to do that too. And so I'm so grateful for them. And during the pandemic, we would do Zoom calls. They'd be like, can we read a book and talk about it? They'd be like, what if we read this book? <laughs> and so we'd read it and we'd talk about it. This is like college students and young adults. And, and they were like, what can we be doing? What can we, and these, there are so many of us who long to be a part of reconciliation and restoration. And um, I want our church to be a part of that. Yeah. Yeah. So this weekend for D-Now, the, the theme was living the story. Yes. Good Faith Media's tagline is there's more to tell. Ah. So what, what do you see as, as your more to tell? Um, through the lens as a minister, um, as a person of faith, what is your more to tell? Well, I keep learning. I keep reading. I keep listening. I keep asking questions. I keep um, <clears throat> going out of my, my normal path and my normal comfort zone to be in relationship with 
people who aren't just like me, right? And one of the things I feel like my job is as a student minister is to show the students the world, to teach them first, to teach them about God and how God works in the world and God's character and who God is. And as I'm teaching that, to show them the world, to take them and say, and, and, and to give them a lens, give them God lenses to look at the world so that they can say, this doesn't look like God intended. So they can recognize that or they can say, oh my goodness, look where God is at work in this area. How could we join that work? Or this is not how God intended it. What do I need to do? And I'm always trying to do that. And as I stand alongside my students and and as we, like this weekend, each of them went to a different place and our goal was to show them, look where God is at work in this community, but, but let's hear the stories of the people that started this work in this community mm. and understand what they saw that compelled them to act and to get to work and to roll up their sleeves to make the world look a little bit more like heaven, to make their little corner, their little neighborhood, their section of the world, make sure the people there have what they need and equip and empower them. And so by, by showing them that and having them listen to those stories, by looking at those places through God's eyes and seeing where God is at work, but also seeing where there's more work to be done, that's my work. And that maybe in that work, in these students' lives, God will plant a seed that we can, as a congregation, cultivate and nurture and water that might lead to vocation, that might lead to a call that they can be God's presence in their world through the work that they do, through the way that they live their lives. And I think that's what I'm called to do and who I'm called to be for our students. I don't know if that answers that question. It does. Thank okay. you. <laughs> Thank you, Anne. Ah, um, you're welcome. <clears throat> for sharing your more to tell and for sharing um, this story of this place that you call your church home. Mm -hmm. Gosh, thanks for asking me to do this. It's always good to talk to you.